Well, please uh, take your Bible, if you will, then, and turn to 1 Samuel 30, and and we're going to try to tackle this chapter tonight. I've entitled this Disaster Relief. You know, in recent years, well, I guess in the last decade or so, we've seen a series of natural disasters strike our nation and really the the world, for that matter. Um, Several things, um, almost in staccato-style fashion, wave after wave, top disasters of the last decade. For instance, an 01 earthquake in India, uh, 20,000 people killed, 170,000 plus injured. 04, the flood in uh, Haiti, 2,000 lives lost there. 04, a tsunami in the Indian Ocean as well, killed probably a quarter of a million people or more. A horrendous thing. And then 05, uh, of course, Katrina, the Probably what has been the costliest and deadliest uh, natural disaster in our in our country to hit our country. Uh, some people say, you know, most severe thing since the Great Depression. Um, Eighteen hundred people killed. You know, thousands of people displaced, homes damaged, destroyed. Uh, then in 05, there was also the earthquake in Pakistan. Seventy-five thousand people killed. In 06, an earthquake in Indonesia, 6,000 people that died there. And uh, and then in 08, the earthquake in China, right? 70,000 people died. Uh, in 09, the H1N1 influenza, swine flu, um, 10,000 deaths, you know, reported that we know about. So... I mean, we've seen a lot of disaster. We've seen a, a lot of really difficult things, and they've come, as I say, in, in waves almost, uh, just crashing upon us. And that's, that's really hard to take. That's, that intensity is very difficult to deal with. It's taken its toll really on everyone around the world, whether directly affected or not. And we all kind of sense the instability that creates, the insecurity that creates, the loss. We grieve that. There's sort of a snowball domino effect and, um, and, you know, puts people on edge a little bit. Some of the things we've learned about disaster, uh, disaster strikes unexpectedly, it strikes impartially, it strikes universally. Um, we've learned that when it rains, it, it pours. We've learned that life as we know it can swiftly change, uh, that property and possessions are not really ours to keep. They're... they're uh, literally washed away in an instant. We've learned that during times of disaster when people are vulnerable, desperate, afraid, or threatened, their true character is revealed. But maybe the bigger lesson has to do with relief. What have we learned about relief, disaster relief? Each successive disaster, I think, sort of pushed out from the shadows onto center stage for all of us to see um, just that whole issue of, of relief, you know, the availability of it, the quality of it, the, uh, the, the importance of it, the cost of it, the complexity of managing it. And so all of that sort of uh, creates a bit of a anxiety and, and forces us to ask, you know, when disaster strikes, will there be relief? Where will you find relief? You know, where will it come from? What kind will come? 
I think we learned that, you know, human resources do run out. Um, even the compassion to, to give and sacrifice uh, has its limits. And every victim of disaster cries out for relief, and in most cases the response time is too long and the aid too little. So we've learned some things from disaster. We've learned some things about disaster relief. Among other things, we've learned that the infra- infrastructure you know, of our cities and states and of our country and other countries around the world is really not bulletproof. It's pretty fragile. Uh, local, state, federal government is not omniscient, it's not omnipotent, certainly not omnipresent. But it just raises the question, when disaster strikes, who will you personally count on for relief. And I want to just maybe bouncing through this chapter, 1 Samuel 30, talk about that a little bit. Um, and maybe even propose that while disaster can come from many different sources, ultimately, really, relief, disaster relief, can only come from God. I think that's the principle or the lesson that we learn from this chapter. David has kind of been on a, a roller coaster. I mean, his life, you know, he's, he's about 30 now. And, uh, you know, what a life, right, in, in that length of time. Very intense. It's like the, I don't know if you've ever been to Six Flags and ridden. It's been a while for me. The, I think the latest big, you know, roller coaster when I went last time was the Batman ride. Um, one of those deals where you sit in the thing and suspended the bars up above you. It's one single bar, you know, and your thing is on there like this, and you're just kind of. And um, all I know is I regret that I was actually tall enough to get on, and <laughs> that's the wrong sign. It shouldn't say, you know, if you're tall enough. It should say if you haven't eaten in the last hour, you may get on, you know, or whatever. But, I mean, David's life has been like that, up, down, upside down, just, just crazy fast. And, um, and, and just when things, you know, maybe couldn't possibly get any worse, they do. And, and chapter 30 um, describes that. Disaster strikes, and it strikes David personally and directly. You remember the context up to this point. David and his men had, had just escaped from you know, having to fight with the Philistines against Israel. God's mercy took care of that, protected them. Uh, David had sought refuge by hiding in Philistine territory, and, and it almost forced him to be in a very difficult situation. But God pr- provided in his providence, delivered him from that, and um, the Philistines ordered he and his men to go back to Ziklag, where, where they all were living. And so you can imagine the relief of that, right? You know, thank the Lord we got out of that one. So they're on their way home, and probably was a three-day walk from where they had been. And I'm sure it was a leisurely and enjoyable walk, and they probably just reminisced and, and, and rejoiced in how God had again protected them and, and delivered them. And maybe they were thinking about how they would enjoy time with their wives and their children and you know, sleep in their own beds at night and relax and maybe play some games with the kids and have a barbecue in the backyard and all that fun stuff that we do when we come home. But that 
is not what happened. In fact, notice how the chapter (laughs) begins. Then it happened. (laughs) Then it happened. When David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire, and they took captive the women and all who were in in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. And David and his men came to the city. Behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Disaster struck. The Amalekites were, were, were mean people. They were bad guys, really bad. Uh, and they had been since Exodus 17 when they attacked Israel on their journey through the wilderness. And God promised then that someday they would be wiped out. In fact, Saul was commanded to finish them off in, in 1 Samuel 15 and didn't. And that's in part why God rejected him as king. And knowing that the Philistines were at war, these nomadic raiders took advantage of the vulnerable city of Ziklag and attacked it. Maybe they expected to find the men at home. Maybe they knew they weren't and uh, probably would have killed the men. But without the men at home, the women and children were easy prey, and they took them captive. They didn't kill them because they wanted them. They, They were spoils. They would maybe keep them, use them as uh, their own slaves, or sell them as slaves. But as soon as the men saw the smoke from the smoldering ruins, they knew that that the worst had happened, and they could only imagine what would become of their wives, what would become of their children. Would they be raped? Would they be tortured? Would they be sold as prostitutes, sacrifices to burn to pagan deities? Would they eke out the rest of their lives in slavery? No way to know. And little hope of of ever seeing them again. So this was devastating. Then verse 4, Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Some of you can imagine what that's like. Some of you maybe have been there. You've been to the bottom only to have the bottom fall out. So you know what this feels like. I, I... don't, I don't think. I mean, I've cried, but I've never cried until I couldn't cry anymore. But I I have learned this, that when disaster strikes, to weep is the right first thing to do. Sometimes that's all you can do, and that's all you do for a long, long time. No answers. There's no secret insight that makes all the pain go away. So you cry, you weep, you mourn, and sometimes you You do that until there's no strength to do it anymore. The tears just run out. And that's how devastating this was. And this hit David directly. Notice verse 5. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. You know, the uh, the Lord didn't spare David from that, you know. The Lord's anointed king to be was not immune from this devastation either. And uh, it's just a reminder to us that it doesn't matter, you know, who you are, how godly you are, how important a player you are in God's plan or God's kingdom. You're not immune from these kinds of things. Disaster strikes impartially. And pain and loss is no respecter 
of persons. Then it gets worse, verse 6. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. Well, this just adds insult to injury, you know. David was hurting just like everyone else, but he was the leader, and so everyone blamed him. You've got to blame somebody. And how quickly things turn. You know, the men who would fight by his side one day would stone him the next. That's the effect that disaster can have on our minds and on our emotions. It's a complex thing. They were embittered. Marar in the Hebrew, the same name Naomi chose for herself after losing her husband and two sons. Ruth 120, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She said, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. That's how these men felt, empty, dealt a bitter blow. But their theology wasn't as good as Naomi's, so David becomes the scapegoat. Now, that's the disaster, okay? What do we learn from it? Well, disaster strikes unexpectedly, impartially. Um, when you think things can't get any worse, you're wrong. Um, like the waves of a tsunami or a hurricane, disaster can pound you like a battering ram until the levee finally blows out. That it's easy for bitterness to turn to rage. And that... God's people are not protected. The book of 1 Chronicles ends with a summary of David's life. It's very interesting. It, it says that the acts of David are recorded in the Chronicles with all his reign, his power, and the circumstances which passed over him. Interesting statement. That's kind of a fitting description of life. In wave upon wave, circumstances pass over us, some to wash us, some to separate us from the things we hold too dearly, some to, to crush us and bring us to a point of desperation and emptiness so that all that's left is God. But that's life, one circumstance after another, one season, one trial, one hardship after another that passes over us. And that was David's that was David's life. But that's where the story turns from disaster to disaster relief. And I want to show you here four provisions God supplies when disaster strikes. Number one, notice God gives strength to endure the distress. At the end of verse 6, it says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What an important phrase that is. Underscore that. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. No FEMA to the rescue, no Red Cross, no Christian counselor, no chaplain to lean on. Yet David found strength where? In the Lord his God. And David was hurting just like everyone else. He too lost wives and children as far as he knew. He too wept until there was no strength to weep. He too was distressed, and doubly so because the people spoke of stoning him. He too was Mara. And yet while the others thought of picking up rocks to stone him, he thought of the rock that is higher than I. 
So when all the other resources had run dry, what he needed still came. Which tells us there remains a reservoir that no disaster can deplete. Jesus called it living water in John 4. Paul called it grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with your spirit, brethren. You know, Scripture commands us to be strong. Scripture makes it clear that our strength comes from the Lord. And David knew how those two come together. And I want to say more on how they come together in a minute. But, but I just want you to take note of the fact that the disaster did not separate David from his God. Disasters may separate you from your stuff, from your health, but not from God. No disaster can do that. No matter how low you go, Psalm 139 says God will be there with you. And as a believer, you know, you can lose everything and still have the main thing you need, which is the strength to endure the distress. That's the great confidence and hope that we have as believers. God is always faithful. His grace is always sufficient no matter what we, no matter what we face. So provision number one, God gives the strength to endure the distress. Second provision, God gives the guidance to rescue the victims. The guidance to rescue the victims. Look at verse 7. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. This was exactly the right thing to do. David's maturity and leadership again stands out in contrast to Saul's. The ephod contained the Urim and Thummim used to discern God's will. It was worn by the priest, and so David called him to come. Verse 8, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. Most likely David knew that it was the Amalekites who had raided them, but he would be hard-pressed to find them without divine assistance. And so through the casting of lots, the Lord encouraged him that, yes, he should pursue, and yes, he would be successful, so they take off. Verse 9, David went, and he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those left behind remained. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor remained behind. You might question the manliness of those who stayed behind, but actually the brook Besor was a significant geographical hurdle. Uh, it was a deep riverbed, three to 400 feet wide, with steep sides, very steep banks. It would have made it difficult for already exhausted men to traverse. So that became the stopping point for 200 of them. But it didn't matter. 400 would be adequate. Because in verse 11, they, they catch a break. <clears throat> they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate and they provided him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins and he ate and his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev of the Cherethites and on 
that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Then David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this band. And David said, You got yourself a deal. (laughs) Well, God is good. I mean, time is of the essence here. David needs help fast. Who knows how far away the Amalekites have gone? Who knows how quickly they would sell off the captives into slavery? And so who should cross his path but this poor Egyptian recovering from the the flu who just happens to know where the bad guys are? And then it gets better. Verse 16, when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. They knew, they knew the Philistines were at war, and they assumed David and his men would be likewise engaged, and so they were carelessly enjoying their pirated spoils. Easy prey for David's men. Verse 17, David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives, but nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle which the people drove ahead of the other livestock, and they said, this is David's spoil. So what is it you need when disaster strikes? Well, first you need strength. God supplies that. Then you need guidance. God supplied that. Through his prophet, God guided David's plans. Through his providence, he guided David's steps. So that's disaster relief. Thirdly, provision number three, God gives the wisdom to distribute the resources. God gives the wisdom to distribute the resources. When David, verse 21, came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had also been left at the brook Besor, they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. Then David approached the people and greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Whoa. You say, who who are these wicked and worthless men among those who went with David? Um, Well, the majority of them, frankly. I mean... um, You know, I think we have this picture of David and his mighty men all being real godly, righteous men. Remember how this group started way back in chapter 22. It's, it's, you know, all these guys that are running from the law and they're in debt and so on. I mean, this is a rowdy bunch. These are not the boys from parochial school by any means. Outcasts of society, malcontents, discontents, trouble with the law, strays, runaways, hungry, homeless. Not the men's choir, okay? some riffraff among the righteous. And so their selfishness and their greed, cleverly disguised here as justice, comes to the surface. 
these slackers didn't fight with us. They shouldn't get any of the loot. But notice in verse 23 how David handles the situation. Number one, with warmth, you know, and, and firm admonition. You must not do so, my brothers. And then secondly, with good theology. You must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us. And then thirdly, with authority. Besides, who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. In fact, that became standard military procedure from then on. Verse 25, so it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. See, that's wisdom. That's just the wisdom of God. He didn't call for a vote. He didn't even have to call for the priest on this one. He could see the right course of action, and he used the right combination of of words to persuade the group to do the right thing. And the key, though, is his theological perspective. Their perspective, verse 22, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. David's perspective, verse 23, you must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. See, theirs was a philosophy of works. David's was a philosophy of Grace. This isn't plunder we recovered. This is what the Lord has given us. He has kept us. He has delivered them over to us. So we can't be the recipients of grace and not be gracious. And that really should be the theology of every Christian, right? First uh, Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, then why do you boast as if you had not received it? Viewing every blessing as this is what the Lord has given us will force us to be generous and gracious toward others. So these are the provisions God makes for our relief when disaster strikes. Number one, he gives strength to endure the distress. Number two, he gives guidance to to rescue the victims. And number three, he gives wisdom to, uh, to distribute and use the resources that are available. Fourthly, we could say God gives the opportunity to advance the kingdom. The opportunity to advance the kingdom. Notice verse 26. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah and Uh, to his friend, saying, Behold, a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Verse 27, To those who were in Bethel, and to those who were in Ramoth of the Negev, and to those who were in Jatir, and to those who were in Eror, and to those who were in Sifmoth, and to those who were in Eshtemoa, and to those who were in Rakal, and to those who were in the cities of the uh, Jeremilites, and to those who were in the cities of the Kenites. How am I doing so far, John, on these names? Pretty good. And to those who were in Hormah, and to those who were in Borashan, and to those who were in Athak, and to those who were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to go. 
This is a beautiful picture of Psalm 67.7. God, our God, blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. So along with strength, guidance, wisdom, God also supplies the opportunity, even in times of disaster, for us to be a blessing to other people. David didn't stockpile his share of the spoils. He shared his share. He made friends. He laid up treasures in heaven. He gave purposefully and strategically. And to whom, you may ask? Well, to all the leading cities of southern Judah, all the places that he had been where, where they had provided refuge and assistance to him, communities that had likely endured Amalekite raids too, just like he had. And so why shouldn't they receive a portion of the loot? Of course, the net effect of this generosity, it paved the path to David's kingship in Judah. The last city listed here for emphasis is Hebron. And in what city was David crowned king over the house of Judah? 2 Samuel 2.4, Hebron. So can something so good come out of something so bad? Yes. And maybe in no other way. So was this a disaster after all? Well, yes, of course. But also it's good to see it as an opportunity to spread God's blessings and to advance God's kingdom. That's always sort of the agenda, you know, with God. Um, And even the worst disasters that we could ever imagine or ever experience become then golden opportunities to fulfill that agenda. You know, spreading God's blessing, advancing God's kingdom. Now, just quickly, let me finish this up by just going back to verse 6. I mean, this really is uh, both a perplexity to me and a joy to me, this statement that David makes, which I think is maybe one of the most compelling things, certainly in this chapter, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Um, You know, that's worth meditating on, chewing on a little bit. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That is a marvelous statement, wonderful, wonderful news, except for one thing. It doesn't tell us how he did that doesn't tell us how he did it it just tells us that he did it which tells us that you can do it you can strengthen yourself in the lord your god whatever potential loss whatever personal attack whatever difficulty trial disaster strength is available from the lord and you don't need anybody to help you get to it in fact you don't need anybody but the Lord. You know, David strengthened himself, apparently by himself, in the Lord his God. Uh, I, 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 we need to learn that. You know, we, we, we become so dependent on books and seminars and retreats and conferences and preachers and people encouraging us and spoon-feeding us and propping us up and picking us up and we 
do well to learn to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, our God. The reason it doesn't tell us how to do that here is because it tells us how to do it in so many other places in the Bible. I'm going to tell you ten ways to strengthen yourself in the Lord. If you're taking notes, you better not blink. Here we go. Number one, wait on the Lord. Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. Number two, Joshua 1, meditate day and night on the law of the Lord, right? Be strong and courageous. How? In his law, meditate day and night. This book of the mouth, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall say it, speak it, meditate on it day and night. So wait on the Lord, you'll gain strength. Meditate day and night on the law of the Lord, you'll be strong and courageous. Number three, pray, Judges 16, 28. And Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me. Pray. You want to be strong? Pray. You need strength? Ask. Number four, put on the full armor of God. Ephesians 6.10, right? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How? Putting on the full armor of God, righteousness, truth, you know, faith, the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, peace. Suit up. Put on the put on the armor. Number five, another way to strengthen yourself in the Lord, Psalm 103, 1 through 5. Count your blessings. Right? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. You want to be renewed? Remember the good things. Count your blessings. Number six, cling to the promises of God. Romans 4. Uh, 18 through 21, that little section in there about Abraham and his faith, who, uh, with respect to the promise of God, did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Cling to the promises of God, and you will have strength. That's how you reverse doubt and fear is you rehearse the promises of God. And then seven, have clean hands. Job 17, 9, nevertheless, the righteous shall hold to his way and he who has clean hands shall grow stronger and stronger. Be righteous, you know, deal with the sin in your life. Stop sinning. Be pure and stay pure and keep yourself pure Whatever's going on, even during disaster, temptation, whatever, you need to be righteous and clean hands have a way of enabling us to be strong and and bold and courageous. Number eight, you want to be strong, do well. Do well. Genesis 4, 6 and 7, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? So do what is right, you know, and you'll be, you'll be strengthened. Do what's expected of you. Do the next thing. Nine, uh, look at eternal things. Second Corinthians 4, 7 through 18, that whole passage there where 
Paul says, we, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Not the temporal things, but the eternal things. So we're renewed day by day by looking at eternal things. Do that. Focus your attention on the things that are eternal. And then finally, if you want to, if you want strength, uh, number ten, be weak. Be weak. Second Corinthians twelve, seven through ten. What does Paul say? You know, he asked for God to take away from him the thorn in his flesh, and, and the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And when Paul realized that, he said, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast of my weakness. I'd prefer to be weak then, if that's how it works, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And that's, what it, that's how it works. So we need to embrace everything that makes us weak anything that makes you weak embrace it accept it cling to it you need it you need to be weak because when you're weak then you'll be strong by the strength which he supplies the problem is we want to we want to you know we want to do all this in our own strength can't do it So strengthen yourself in the Lord. Those are some possibilities. Those are some of the possibilities maybe for how David did it. Certainly they're available to you as well. But the point is, you know, that David did. He strengthened himself in the Lord, and that means that you can too. Whatever disaster, whatever hard thing comes into your life, the one resource you can count on is the strength from God that will always be there and never run out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage and just the simple principle that's here for us. We do, Lord, need your strength, and um, we need it every day, some days more than others. So we thank you that the supply is there, and uh, thank you for the things that you use in our lives to drive us to that supply. May we do that. May we truly learn to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, our God, and to realize that you're you're sufficient for us. You're the resource that that we need. Uh, Thank you that you're always there. Father, we just, again, thank you for the time that we've had today to be together. And uh, we look forward to just time to eat and share and fellowship and pray you minister to us as we converse with each other pray you would just go before us and uh, prepare us for the things ahead this week the opportunities that will will come uh, trials that will come temptations that even now you'd be strengthening us for all of that and, and make us adequate for whatever comes because you're sufficient may we cling to you and lean upon you and depend upon you and, and prove you again and again thank you for your faithfulness in christ's name